So I hope you will pardon me as I begin with an old, very bad joke this evening. I'm usually not sort of a jokey type of rabbi or the ones that likes to lead every time with some schlocky joke, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it tonight, okay? So there are three travelers who are beginning a long and arduous journey together through the desert. Each has been given the choice of one object they can bring with them along the way. One man turns to his fellow traveler and asks, why are you carrying that empty jug with you? He replies, I'm hoping that we'll come across an oasis or a stream or something. And I can save the water and we can drink along on the journey. And he asks the second guy, why did you bring that straw mat with you through the desert? He says, well, you know, I can spread it out. And I, if I need to rest, I don't have to lay down on that hot desert sand. And if the sun beats down too hard, I can put it over my head. I can unroll it for shade. It'll be great. And he turns to the third traveler and says, so what about you? Why are you carrying that large car door with you through the desert? Oh, it's simple, he says. If it gets too hot, I can always roll down the window. It's really bad, right? Well, this joke may elicit a groan from all of you. Um, the punchline runs parallel to this week's Torah portion and the story of the construction of the tabernacle in Vayechel. Why does God want the Israelites to build a 100 by 50 foot, 50 cubit tabernacle? Cubit is like from your elbow to the edge of your finger there connected with bronze sockets and adorned with gold, silver, rare gems, and goat hair, and then carry it with them to schlep it for 39 years through the wilderness. What purpose does the tabernacle serve beyond that of a car door? Nachmanides, the famous 13th century commentator, explains that the tabernacle is built to capture the experience of Sinai and make it both permanent and portable for the people of Israel. In a world before iPhones or Instagram or even cameras, how could the Israelites possibly pass on the unique moment of Sinai to their descendants? This challenge became all the more crucial in light of the fact that only two of the original witnesses to Sinai's revelation, Caleb and Joshua, would endure through the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. By the time the Israelites would enter the Promised Land, the memory of Sinai may have faded from collective memory. Think about that. Of all of the Israelites that entered Israel in the generation of Joshua, even for them, the story of Sinai was just that a story and no longer a personal experience. One of my favorite writers, Mary Douglas, who's a researcher on the Bible, and she's really good, you should read her stuff, she picks up Nachmanides' argument in her seminal work, Leviticus as Literature. She writes, Both Sinai and the tabernacle evidence a tripartite division. The summit corresponds to the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. The second zone, partway up the mountain of Sinai, is equivalent to the tabernacle's outer sanctum, or the holy place. And the third zone, at the foot of the mountain, is analogous to the outer court. As with the tabernacle, the three distinct zones of Sinai feature three gradations of holiness in descending order. Just as all the people Israel were at the foot of the mountain, all of the people could come to the courtyard of the tabernacle. Just as the priests and elders were halfway up the mountain, so too the priests would be inside the tabernacle. And just as Moses 
the one highest priest went to the very top of the mountain on Yom Kippur, so did the so did the highest excuse me, the he goes up to the top of the mountain on Yom Kippur because according to the rabbis, his ascent up Sinai begins on the first of Elul and ends on Yom Kippur. So too did the high priest in the tabernacle enter the Holy of Holies only on Yom Kippur. In addition to Douglas's observations, the screen in front of the Holy of Holies mirrors the smoke that divides Moses from the elders on Sinai. Right. In all, the Mishkan may be interpreted as an attempt to capture the revelation at Sinai in a way that could be carried along with the Israelites. This idea actually isn't that unfamiliar to us. Our congregation, especially the main sanctuary, is constructed with the exact same order. You've got the congregation down at the bottom, the rabbis and cantors up on the bima, the ark at the very, very top. In fact, in the main sanctuary, you even have a little mountain right up there that the student, the bar bat mitzvah, walks up to and gets the Torah and comes back down. This week's Torah portion also includes the instructions for the building of the menorah. The menorah is not the thing you light at Hanukkah. That's the Hanukkiah. It's a misnomer. That has nine branches. The menorah has seven branches to mark the seven days of the week. But if you look at the instructions this week, it says that the menorah made out of gold should have petals and flowers and cups, like flower cups at the very top to hold the oil. If you think about it, where was it in the Torah where God was witnessed, was found in a plant that was burning at the top of it? Right? It's basically, how do I take the burning bush and before cameras make that an experience for all of Israel? That becomes a microcosm for the temple overall. It's symbols meant to allow later generations to go through the same experience of the ancient Israelites. The book of Exodus, which we conclude next week, wraps up with two portions on the tabernacle and its operations, one covering the revelation of Sinai and the golden calf, and then two more further portions on the tabernacle, which conclude the book of Exodus. By bookending Sinai's revelation with four portions on the tabernacle's construction, we observe a clear connection between the historical moment and the edifice which hearkens to it. In all, whether it is our grandparents' Shabbat candle holders, the wedding band we first slipped on underneath the chuppah, or our child's friendship bracelet from Camp Tawanga or Camp Newman, we all cling to monuments of sacred moments in our lives. Such modern-day talismans allow us to experience at least a fraction of the sacred on a regular basis. Eventually, they become a part of who we are. Therefore, as we move towards concluding Exodus, the second book of the Torah, may we find comfort and inspiration from those objects which connect us with our sacred past. And may those items we have received from recent ancestors and beyond remind us of the love and awe with which they were given. Can your own may it be God's will. Amen. Amen. And while we're thinking of artifacts and things that remind us.